Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of August 20th, 2018. On this week's show, we'll talk about Jalen Ramsey, Jarvis Landry, and the fine art of shit-talking in the NFL. We'll also assess a new set of rules that will either change college basketball forever or will not do much at all, depending on who you listen to. And Dana O'Neill of The Athletic will join us to discuss how UMBC is trying to parlay its once-in-a-lifetime 16-over-1 NCAA tournament upset into sustained success. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. <laughs> Can we get a little bit more excitement? Hey, Josh. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and with us by Skype is Damon Young. Damon is the co-founder of Very Smart Brothers. He's the senior editor of The Root, and he's the author of the book, what doesn't kill you makes you blacker. What's up, Damon? Hey, hey, what's up? Was this excited enough? Yeah, that's great. That's pretty good. Great. You're in Pittsburgh. Awesome. You're in Pittsburgh, right? I am in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and Are... and also really quick, the book doesn't come out until March, so you can't like it's not it's not available yet. So like so. people, if they go to the bookstore, just don't start like yelling at the shopkeeper yeah, because they don't, don't have it yet. Don't don't accuse like Barnes and Noble of being uh, of racism or like some Damon based <laughs> conspiracy because they don't carry this book because they just don't yet. It's it's not even done yet. I'm so. a big proponent of deep Damon <laughs> conspiracies though. So I may, yeah. I may not I mean, be able you could to do, do that. that. Yeah. You could do that. And that would be very entertaining, but I'm just saying you wouldn't be in the right. All right. Um, before last week, Jacksonville Jaguars cornerback Jalen Ramsey was probably most famous for getting choke slammed last season. Um, I mean, <laughs> who among us is not most famous for getting choke slammed? Uh, this guy was choke slammed by Bengals receiver AJ Green. Here was Ramsey's explanation for why he got choke slammed. Uh, this was in a media scrum after that game last year. I told him almost every play that he was weak. They saw that demonstrate facts. He just came in with true facts. Told him that his time almost up. Um, told him that it was easy, which it was. He had one catch for six yards. Uh, I was just out there spitting facts to him. So he, he got mad. Um, All right. So I'm just going to uh, speak facts and just you guys are going to have to deal with it. Um, la- last week, Ramsey had a lot to say about opposing quarterbacks in an interview with GQ. Among his comments, Bill's rookie Josh Allen is trash. Joe Flacco sucks. Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady don't suck. Dak Prescott, he's okay. Ben Roethlisberger, decent at best. Deshaun Watson will be the MVP in a couple of years. And his own quarterback, Blake Bortles, Blake do what he got to do. Now, <laughs> that's the that was the one part. Because if you like look at that whole list, you're like, this guy's... You know, he's just being honest. And the the difference between Jalen Ramsey and everybody else is he's just more honest and doesn't care about the blowback. Except then when you get to Blake Bortles, Blake do what he got to do. You got to be honest about your own guys, Damon. 
I mean, I, I feel like that was that was honesty too. I mean, it, it in honesty doesn't always mean that you tell the truth. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm not That's really Giuliani. I'm you know I'm not taking my cues from him, but I, I, I do think that he gave a very um, I don't know. He gave a very political answer, which wasn't necessarily a lie. Like you know, Blake got to do what he got to do, and that can mean anything. That could mean Blake. <laughs> You know, you know, ties his shoes the way he ties his shoes. Blake, you know, says things in the huddle the way he's supposed to say things in the huddle. So it was just open to interpretation. And I appreciate Jalen um, leaving it that way. Yeah, Blake puts ketchup on hot dogs. He has to do what he got to do. Yeah, um, I, I think my favorite of all of them, though, was, was when he said, what's the Atlanta quarterback's name? <laughs> he does have like Matt a Ryan? super generic name. Let's be honest. It's true. Yeah. You could confuse him. Matt Ryan, Josh Allen. Yeah. They're all yeah. Matt Ryan is definitely one of those names that's in like a Madden name generator. Um, <laughs> it, it, anyone with two first names, really. You know, you just like, is that is that a stage name? Is that your real name? Is that an alias? All right. So beyond the quarterback assessment, I think we should talk a little bit about what Jalen Ramsey's larger goal might be here is is he just sort of a truth-talking NFL player who doesn't give a shit and we should respect that because candor is fantastic and it creates more attention for individual matchups and team matchups and it makes him a personality that gets him interviewed by GQ and lets him do like a 10-minute video with GQ about what's in his man purse which he (laughs) did Um, or is this just sort of roll your eyes 25-year-old dude is just talking out of school. Well, I think it's a bit of both. Um, I, and, and you know, if you make the comparison between, like, the NFL and the NBA, and, you know, the NFL is so such a, such a straight-laced and such a conservative organization that when you have a player that comes out and is very outspoken like this, it becomes, like, the biggest deal ever. Whereas in the NBA, this is just a Tuesday. This is just a, a summer Tuesday, like, oh, someone says something about someone else and you're just going to go about your day. And and again, I think what makes this um, you know so notable is that this is rare for an NFL player. And with that, I want to qualify that because although it is rare for NFL players to speak about other players like this, um, the players that do this the most tend to be either receivers or cornerbacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's funny because if you look, you know, in bringing this basketball analogy back, if you look at the guys who have, like, I guess, the most similar skill sets athletically, size-wise, to basketball players, it is the cornerbacks and it is the receivers, many of whom played in high school and in some, some of them even played in college and were – and we're, and we're good players. That's definitely true. I mean, I think for corners specifically, just because all of the rules um, that the league has made, all of the changes in the last couple decades have favored offenses, have favored the passing game. To be as confident as Jalen Ramsey, you have to be insane. Like, um, to feel like you can like lock down any guy in the league when everything has been stacked against you, like not only are there amazing athletes you got to go up against every week, but like the entire structure, like the entire system 
of the league is like designed is like working against you designed to make you Mm -hmm. look foolish Mm -hmm. and so to be able to have success it's like yeah you're like the shit like if if you can like if you can lock guys down every week the way that Jalen Ramsey does like um obviously that's like that is the biggest accomplishment that you can possibly have on a football field in 2018. Well I think and and even beyond that Josh I think what is what's refreshing about Jalen Ramsey is that it's it's just fun. I mean, whether his teammates appreciate it, I wouldn't be so sure. I bet there is a lot of eye rolling inside the Jaguars locker room and people, you know, printing out GQ or whatever and even buying a copy. Is it in the magazine or was it just online? I'm sure it was in the magazine Um, and tossing it in front of his locker or marking it up. because there is this sort of, you know, for all of our criticism of the way NFL teams are run as these hierarchical babysitting clubs for players, inside there is definitely a low threshold for tolerance of outlandish behavior by people on your team. There is a sort of uh, anything that creates more media attention and brings more reporters inside the locker room. A lot of it know. isn't like welcome. Well, I would say this. I think that getting attention as a member of the Jacksonville Jaguars right. that would is be like the, that would be the counter. That is like not. A, I, I retract what I said before about like being a, a a cornerback and having success is the hardest thing to do in the NFL. Being like a famous Jacksonville Jaguar <laughs> is like the pinnacle of sports success. And Ramsey and Leonard Fournette like run that team. Like since they came in, they totally changed the attitude and the personality and they got them to the championship game. And so like whatever this guy says and wants to do, they're like everybody else better fall in line because this team was nothing before those guys got there. Yeah. He, he you know, it's, it's a cliche to, to say that someone changed the culture of, I, I hate, I hate when, when, when um, athletes and when coaches or, or people say that about athletes or coaches, but you know, in this instance, I, I do think that that is true because Jacksonville, I mean, no one gives a shit about Jacksonville. Um, I'm sorry if anyone out there from Jacksonville is listening, I, I apologize, but you have to realize no one gives a shit about your city and Jalen coming in, Jalen Ramsey coming in and, and being like this, this person in the locker room that, um, and also too, you know, in that same, in that same GQ interview, they do mention that he is, he is egged on by his teammates because they felt like they weren't getting enough recognition you know, they, they see that, you know, the, the defense in Seattle has their own nickname and, you know, gets their own sound bites or whatever. And they felt like they were, you know, similar stature. So they would tell Jalen, hey, go say this to the go say this to the media. Hey, say give this quote or talk shit about this person just so we get a little bit more attention. And and again, I think that especially with a football team. It, it is sometimes valuable to have a person like that because it also allows for people to continue to not be asked questions. The other thing about the GQ interview that I think is not being talked about enough is that he's a smart guy who had some really interesting things to say about the NFL's um, policy on standing or showing up for the national anthem. Um, he talked about it in sort of football terms and as much as 
look, a lot of guys don't want to go out. We want to finish getting ready for the game, getting psyched up, listening to music, getting taped, getting prepared. Um, now, if we don't go out, it's going to be interpreted as something that it might not be. And also, he said, I think the NFL is just missing it right now. They're, they're making it about what it's not really about. It's not about we don't love America. It's not about not respecting the flag. That's not what it's all about. So good for him. I mean, good for him for not. This isn't just about, I don't know, Matt Ryan's name or Jimmy Garoppolo <laughs> sucks until he does something. Well, the thing that I found fascinating about that is that it's actually a lot more rare for a player to call out other players than to call out Donald Trump at this point or to say that the anthem policy is stupid, um, not to like move away from that, from, you know, his smart points about the anthem. But I feel like... Um, I don't know, Damon. I don't know what, what you think. Like, it, it seems like in the era of, like, Deion Sanders and Michael Irvin and Keyshawn Johnson, like, I don't know why it would be that it seems more unusual now for a player to be calling out other players to be, like, publicly talking in this way than it did, um, you know, in the, in the 90s. That just seems counterintuitive to me. Um, you know, that, 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 that is a good point. And and you would think that there is more, there would be more of it now since there are more mediums to do it, more platforms for players to do it on. Um, you don't need the, you don't need GQ. Like Jalen Ramsey could have just gone to his Instagram page and said all this stuff, and it may have gotten the same amount of, may have gotten the same amount of press. Um, yeah, but he wouldn't have gotten a sponsorship deal with Burt's Bees. He so. would not have gotten Burt's Bees. Probably not. You're right. I mean, do you think um, it's possible that the league is just is like even more regimented now than it was? 20, well, 20 years I, I ago? think you know what I, I think that it. One thing that may be happening is that because the league has become like just this, just this um, symbol of of incompetence and evil that the players are banded together against the league now. Yeah, so instead of the league just existing as, hey, this is where I work, you know, there's some good things about it, there's some bad things about it, um, I, there might be a bit more of a brotherhood where players are like, you know what, we're, we're in this together and, and fuck, fuck, the, fuck the management, fuck the ownership, you know, and whoever else, you know, is against us for, for protesting um, peacefully. Um, you mentioned changing the culture. A guy who's trying to change a culture is my man Jarvis Landry out of LSU. Uh, played for the Dolphins um, from the beginning of his time in the league. He's now on the Browns and has become the breakout star of the annual offseason spectacle of Hard Knocks. He gave a locker room speech. Um, I wanted to cut a clip from this. I managed to cut it down to 50 seconds, but, but I feel like you need to have the whole experience. So let's listen to 50 seconds of Jarvis Landry in the Cleveland Browns locker room. I don't know what the fuck been going on here. And I don't know why it's been going on here, but this, if you're not hurt, like if your hamstring ain't falling off the fucking bone, your leg ain't broke, I don't know, like, you should be fucking practicing. Like, straight up. Like, that shit is weakness. And that shit is contagious as fuck. And that shit ain't gonna be in this room, bruh. That shit been here in the past, and that's why the past has been like it is, bruh. That shit is over with here, bruh. If you can fucking practice, fucking practice. 
You can't get no better. Ain't nobody gonna get better by being on the fucking sideline if you ain't fucking hurt. If you're not fucking hurt, you gotta fucking practice. Just the exact opposite of the Allen Iverson speech is uh, <laughs> what I enjoy. I about think it's that. the Allen Iverson speech played in reverse. Yeah. Yeah. AI is dead is what is yeah. what uh, happens when you play it in reverse. Yeah. Um, speaking of like uh, truth telling, the the parts of the, the parts of that that are true are that are the very beginning. I don't know what's been going on here. That is definitely true <laughs> when you're talking about Cleveland. The part that is not true is that they're bad because guys weren't playing when the hamstring is falling off their or bone. Or trying. Yeah, I'm sure players that, were trying. On that seems that seems wrong. They like working. They like yeah. They're, I the mean, NFL. the Browns are just bad because they're the Browns. Like it's not. Yeah, it's. I, I, and again, this is it's this like is getting mad at water been, because it's wet. <laughs> yeah, this has always been a pet peeve of mine when people. One, I mean. You know, Travers Landry is a is a good player, but this isn't like AJ Green. This isn't Antonio Brown. This isn't like some guy who's perennial All Pro coming in and you know having this this speech in front of in front of everybody. I mean, I I follow the NFL pretty you know not as much as I used to, but I had no idea that he was with the Browns until this viral speech. You know, and and again, I'm not. I'm not saying that because he's not like a person of the stature, he shouldn't be able to talk. But I, I just feel like him coming in as like the new sheriff, you know, if I'm in that locker room, I'm thinking, yo, who the fuck are you? <laughs> um, and, and also, too, those those types of raw, raw speeches just do not work. <laughs> like they, you know, what works is accountability. What works is getting people better. What works is, you know, in, in going back to the accountability point, is that, that trickling down from the top levels of the team, you know, ownership, management, coaches, all the way down to the players. Like those rah-rah, you know, y'all better, you know, those Ray Lewis types of speeches, they only work if you, if you have actual talent. And if you have actual, you know, if you have an actual atmosphere that's conducive to, to, to allowing that talent to thrive. If you don't have that, then he's just, again, the only point of that speech is for it to be on Twitter. Well, he knows that the Hard Knocks camera is up in the corner of the room, you know, filming everything that he says, too. Not to impugn Jarvis Landry in any way. And I want to be clear that that wasn't before the whole team. That was in the wide receivers room. So there were eight guys in there. And I've been in those rooms. And it's, you know, it's between practices during two a days half the guys are like falling asleep you know you're in your flip-flops mm. and shorts and Jarvis Landry maybe is trying to maybe he has noticed something about the way that the younger players are approaching practice yeah. it is yeah, conceivable I'm, it's just that, between him the wide receivers and everyone and on everyone. the internet <laughs> yeah. exactly. and, and I, I can see that yeah you know tempers you know and, and I've been in those not obviously not in a professional setting, but um, in college where, you know, you have your two a days and before the season starts and everyone's nerves are like are afraid. afraid and yeah. And you're just, and you're ready. You're, you're, yeah. You're exhausted. And training and so camp is obviously it's, it's fucking hot. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a drag. It's a drag. So, you know, on, on from that end, I get it. And I think that those type of things have like immediate effects where people, you know, if that was in the middle of a two-a-day, then that, that second 
the second practice out there, yeah, it's going to be more intense. Yep. You know, and people who maybe are dealing with a little ailment that they might have sat out with before are going to, you know, get out there and play. But again, I just I just don't think that those types of speeches have any substantive long-term effects. They probably made, made Jarvis yep. Landry feel good. Before we move off of the speech itself, I, do, I did a taxonomical breakdown or a linguistic breakdown of Jarvis Landry's speech. Um, I had to listen very closely in three or four times, which was worth it. Um, there are 21 fuck or fuckings, 10 shits, <laughs> five bruh or bruv, three motherfuck or motherfuckers, and one very, very emphatic bitch. Okay. So what did your, you What your, did you make of table. that? Um, that it probably that the that the that the cuss words probably occupied I would say forty percent, maybe thirty percent of the total words used by Jarvis Landry, and that's an impressive, impressive performance. Whatever you think it's about dense. the intent, in the intent or the effectiveness of his speech, it's an impressive bit of uh, of speech it, making. It is, and and also in that context bruh actually the way he says it actually becomes like the most fearsome word yeah because it 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 definitely you know the way it just strips off of his tongue like it 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 it, it lands a lot harder than the fucks and the shits and the bitches do because bruh is like yo bruh it, it's it's like it's it's the last bro you heard before you get hit in the face <laughs> Jarvis Landry did uh, start a fight in practice by throwing a ball in a teammate's face. Um, one of their preseason opponents, uh, I think it was the Bills, accused him of throwing dirty blocks. I mean, this is a guy since back in college. You mentioned Damon. He's not an all-pro, but he is a guy who's known for like playing incredibly hard. He played special teams when he was at LSU, when he was the star receiver with Odell Beckham. He um, is a guy who's known as a great blocker. And so he has some standing, I feel like, to talk about playing hard and to talk about the part that's just really dumb. And it gets back to your point about the players kind of banding together against the league. And you've talked about this a bunch too, Stefan. Just the notion that like success in the NFL is based on playing while you're hurt. Um, yeah, that's, just, that's it's the just part so of the wrongheaded that, and weird that's like, the in part this day that, and age. That upset me because I've been around, I know players that had their hamstring fall off of the bone yeah. because they were misdiagnosed by a team doctor um, and needed surgery that basically ended their career. Um, that, was, that was the case with Nate Jackson, our friend and, and regular podcast guest. Um, but that's so the thing that's th fascinating. Th that is that players are still willing to implore other players to continue playing through obvious injuries rather than, look, you should practice. But if there's something wrong with you, your life is more important than the Cleveland Browns winning two games instead of one game this year. Right. Well, Damon, would you be would you say that it's like fair to say that Landry is like doing the work of ownership in a way? It's like this like uh, it's just us or wide the coaching staff at least. It's just us wide receivers here, and it's like all about like us. But he's actually just telling him like go out there and like harm yourself for the good of the of uh, the owners. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a pro management stance. You know, you you could say that um, Jarvis Landry is actually like a union buster, um, if if you want to go that far. Because yeah, it's a uh, the, the the this is what you would hear from a coach. This is what you would hear from a GM. Um, is that you know go out there, sacrifice your body for the team, and you know the and 
does it matter if this is a terrible team and with terrible ownership and terrible management? No, it doesn't. Go out there still and sacrifice your hamstrings and, you know, sacrifice your, your spleen if it comes to that for the sake of the Cleveland Browns. And your brain. And, and your brain. Yeah, and, and don't forget about the brain. And the the only part that Jarvis Landry left out of that speech is the one that the coaches no doubt are reiterating is that your job is on the line. That if you do not go out and practice right. when you are injured and you are not 100% or 70% or even 50%, that you run the risk of losing your employment. That's the thing about training camp in particular, right? Yes. Is that a lot of the guys in the room aren't going to be in the room during the regular season. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he's talking to a guy who, who might be at working at Best Buy um, two months from now, you know, and screaming in his face about, about getting out there and playing. And it's like, yo, I'm, I'm just here so I can get the paycheck and get some HBO time right now. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to our conversation about rule changes in college basketball, wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about what makes a good coach, what makes a bad coach, and whether negativity in coaching ever works. If you want to hear that conversation, you should join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. The NCAA earlier this month announced big changes in its governance of college basketball. A small group of elite players will be allowed to have agents who now will be able to legally buy a kid lunch. Awesome. If a player in that small group isn't drafted by the NBA, he will be allowed to return to school. Those seem like small, reasonable steps, but they're getting the most attention. Keep reading, though, and you will see that other changes are designed to benefit not the student-athlete about whom the NCAA professes to care so deeply, but the NCAA itself. Damon, let's start with the newsmaking stuff. Players can declare for the NBA draft, hire an agent, benefit from his counsel, and then return to school if he's not drafted. The NBA drafts like 60 players a year. This change would have affected something like six guys last year. Yeah, uh, so much so much of, 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 this, of this discussion about you know the NCAA and the draft and the one and done's um, is so overblown um, because it, it, you know, I mean, what are there, 400 Division One basketball teams? So that's what, 4,000, 5,000 scholarship players, roughly, you know, I'm, 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 I'm probably, you know, overestimating. And you're talking about stuff that affects like 60 guys. Um, and all of these rule changes and, machinations and and just 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 weirdness and like even with the first thing that um about how you know players that have been considered like these elite players can sound with agents even that just doing that little thing is going to open up another pandora's box because who is going to decide who's an elite player 
I mean, it seems like the big goal here, um, I don't know <laughs> if it was as dastardly as this, but it seems like they wanted to, as I think maybe you're implying, Stefan, put the like, oh, we're going to be nicer to the like elite players and let them come back to school if they don't get drafted because, um, uh, you know, that'll make us look good. But then like the actual substance of it is that they want to decrease the influence of the shoe companies in the summer basketball circuit. They want to basically... Yeah, this is the stuff I was saying is the finer print that people aren't talking about as much. Yeah, they want to take control of summer grassroots basketball and, um, you know, all the camps like the, you know, Nike camps, Adidas camps, Under Armour camps that happen in the summer. Um, they they want to decrease the power and importance of those and just create these like NCAA, NBA, USA basketball camps um, that give them control and essentially favor the schools and the coaches um, and decrease the power of shoe executives. Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this this whole issue for, for decades now, really. Um, and I, I, in my opinion, I, I feel like the best solution to all of this would be to just allow players to come right out of high school. And if you do decide to, to go to college, then maybe you have to stay two years. So you, you, you give the high school senior the, you know, the, the chance to make that decision. But if he decides to go to college, well, then you have to stay there. You, you can't get drafted until your sophomore year is ended. And I, I feel like maybe doing that could be some sort of medium that, that appeases both sides. Well, what the NCAA is doing here is fattening its rule book. I mean, the NCAA's rule book is already incomprehensible and hundreds of pages long and attempts to solve every existing and imaginary problem. Um, Michael McCann did a long sort of assessment of these rule changes for Sports Illustrated. Um, you know, and he noted that for this handful of athletes that may be allowed to get an agent, they could benefit from knowledge from working with him, even if it's for a short time. He can intervene with coaches on, on the player's behalf. I'm sure the coaches will be thrilled, thrilled with that. Yeah, thrilled. Um, if a kid is investigated by the school or the NCAA, he'd have some representation. Agents can buy him some stuff, travel, hotel, food. On the other hand, you know, this is just the limitations are crazy. I mean, this only applies in the off season. So if anything were to happen during the season, you couldn't turn to your counsel. Um, and then there's what it doesn't do. There's no endorsement or likeness deals here. This only benefits a very small class of athletes. It has nothing to do with women athletes. Um, uh, there's this subclass of players that may be second tier that go to play overseas. They don't get the benefit from having some sort of counsel during their senior year when it's they're trying to prop up, a, prop up a dying system. And, and you know, you mentioned the summer camps, Josh. The other piece here is that the NCAA has decided now, as the FBI is investigating players and coaches and shoe companies, that, oh, we didn't used to want to do this or we didn't used to allow ourselves to do this, but now we're going to be happy to take information from outside parties uh, about our athletes and our programs, outside investigators, and incorporate that into our own investigations and punishments. This is the NCAA trying to strengthen control over the players right. as opposed to giving the players more agency. Right. 
Before we go back to you, Damon, I should say that you uh, were a high school basketball star. You played D1 at uh, Canisius. I'm curious, just, um, you know, from back when you were playing, what was your recruitment process like? And would any of these changes had any effect on you? Um, so my recruitment process, I, I feel like if this, if this were written out, recruitment process would be in quotes um, <laughs> because I, you know, for a person like me who, you know, I had some, some lower division one offers um, and, and attention. I think the biggest school that, that gave me any type of love was Marquette at the time. But, and that was just like some guys saw me playing some game and, you know, st- stayed on me. But, um, but it was mostly, you know, schools on that level, like the schools in the MAC and schools in the um, whatever conference that Robert Morris is in. Um, also, Patriot League, Bucknell, Lehigh schools like that. And so, for a person like me, and and a person like me is most Division One basketball players. You're not, yeah, you're not getting paid by agents. You're not getting, you know, you're not getting money for doing what you what you know for doing this and. You know, it's um, well, from what I've read, the circuit and the centralization of it could actually hurt the Damon Youngs of the world, like guys who get the opportunities to be seen when, you know, maybe a coach or a scout is looking for another player and you're like playing in this tournament. If the tournaments are only if it's like under NCAA control and it's only like the top elite guys, then that's going to hurt the you know vast majority of players potentially. Well, I, I actually I've always felt like the um, the NCAA and NBA, I guess, working together to to make players who are you know who are clearly interested in going straight to NBA go to college hurts people like hurts the Damon Youngs hurts those people because so let's say you you know you have a incoming high a hang, an incoming college class and let's say twenty of those guys decided they want to go to the NBA which is a large number but still let's just say there's twenty of them. Well, that means that there are 20 more scholarships available, you know, that end up trickling down. And so you have 20 more guys like me that end up getting scholarships. Now, maybe they're not getting scholarships to Duke, but again, you know, it ends up trickling down. And, you know, a school like Canisius or a school like Siena or a school like Robert Morris has an extra scholarship. Um, and, and again, I just, I don't know. I, I, I feel like... I'll, so much of this discussion about the NCAA and 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 the rules and adding rules and and whatever deals with you know like maybe two or three percent of the Division One college you know basketball population, um, and you know the goal or, or the good thing I, I guess the best thing isn't for them to make more rules is to take away rules. Like no one looked at the NCAA rule book, which is like a thousand pages, and it's like you know what we need more pages on that book. <laughs> you know, it's like going to the Cheesecake Factory. Like you don't go there and say you know I, I wish you all had more options. No, you you know you want them to pare it down and you know make things more streamlined. And now they're just adding more things that are going to be that are get again give more opportunity for people to find loopholes and more opportunity for people to break them. And I think that this reflects what, again, as always, what the NCAA really is about, 
if it were about all of the Division I, just say, men's basketball players. The point you make, Damon, that, yeah, 20 more guys getting scholarships is 20 more opportunities that improves the lives of 20 young men in a real tangible way, not guys that yeah. are going to go play in the NBA. Mm-hmm. But what this shows is that you know, it exposes the sort of crass hypocrisy of all of this, that the NCAA and all of these big programs are focusing on the locks, the guys that are going to go to the NBA. And whether they have long careers or not, they're going to go and make some cash. Mm-hmm. And they're going to do well. They are guaranteed. So we're worried about you know, whether a player gets to talk to an agent for six months before he goes to the NBA draft where he's likely to be selected and is guaranteed some money versus really addressing the needs of the people at the bottom of, of, the, of, of the bowl. The, the, the guys that you said benefit from the trickle down if we just ignore or at least just let the great players go when it's time for them to go, which is after high school. Yeah. And, and, and again, I just, uh, I, I'm, I'm not, I, I am not sh- sure really what the NCAA, what the NCAA is so scared of. Now I, I know that having these elite players and keeping them in school, you know, just drives more interest in the sport. Um, yeah, it's about revenue creation, sure. Yeah, it's about revenue creation. But again, I don't have the numbers or anything in front of me, um, so I can't really speak to this. But I mean, did they have a dip in revenue when players were allowed to go straight to the NBA? Um, and dip no. in revenue and in, and in ratings. No, I mean, people given, were still watching. Given that the, the 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 most recent television contract with CBS and Turner was signed long after Kevin Garnett went to the NBA and Kobe Bryant went to the NBA straight from high school. Yeah, so it doesn't it doesn't really it doesn't seem to really affect their bottom lines. Now, I, I I will say for someone like me who, you know, NBA basketball is my favorite type of basketball to watch. So I do enjoy watching you know these elite high school players come in and play in college just because i like watching people who are elite players play but in terms of just the larger picture you know is this having them in college doesn't really help the ncaa that much it seems like yeah i mean having zion williamson at duke has made me interested in like watching highlights of Duke's uh, preseason exhibition tour of Canada. So maybe, and and all of those games are on ESPN plus. It hasn't made me actually want to subscribe to ESPN plus. I'm very curious about the university of Toronto now. (laughs) McGill Duke like beat the crap out of McGill. So, um, and just, just for, I guess some more context though, a lot of those schools were schools that Canisius plays in like exhibition games. Yeah. Um, like before the season, there's also like McMaster university, which is another one of those schools that's in like the area between Buffalo and, and um, Toronto. And so I'm seeing these teams. I'm like, oh, we, we struggled with these teams. <laughs> <laughs> these were like, we won mostly, but these were not like easy games for us. And, you know, you just see Duke go out there, you know, playing all freshmen basically and, you know, just, just dominating. And it's just like, wow, yeah, that was not me. Well, good for Duke. That's, that's really the lesson here. Good for Duke. Mm-hmm. This is working well for Duke.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How improbable, how amazing. The superlatives, you can't come up with enough. Absolute. Incredible performance. Shock it all in college basketball. UNBC makes history in Charlotte. That was CBS's Jim Nance being Jim Nance at the moment when the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, became the first 16 seed to defeat a number one seed in the NCAA men's basketball tournament when they spanked the University of all of Virginia, 74 to 54. The Retrievers would lose in the next round, but the upset drew unprecedented attention to the school that before March was known mostly for its STEM programs and its chess team. Dana O'Neill of The Athletic, recently visited the campus off of I-95 and wrote about the fallout from that crazy night. Hey, Dana. Hey there. How are you guys? Before we get to the coach and his backstory, which really formed the spine of your piece, tell us a little about what's happened at UMBC since the Virginia game and how the school has sought to capitalize on the attention. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, as you said, you know, they were known for their STEM program and their chess program, but they were probably known honestly, regionally as a university, more than nationally. And talking to the, you know, the university president and people on campus, they feel really good that they were kind of ready for their close-up. They got this basketball win, and all of a sudden people started Googling what is UMBC, and they discovered this university that had all sorts of things going on in terms of raising their academic profile, and they've been doing that for years, and all sorts of um, you know, opportunities for people who graduate going on to get their PhDs. They, they, are in the, they just opened a brand-new uh, facility for the basketball team and arena plus a practice facility. So all these things were going on. So they were really ready for their close-up, and they've been getting it. They were telling me that, you know, tours of uh, potential freshmen are, are sold out, that they expect to see an admissions and application bump next year, that the bookstore is running, you know, ran out of gear overnight, all the things that we talk about, the so-called Flutie effect. But I think it's, you know, it's really interesting because some schools get that and, and they're sort of like, oh, my goodness, we gotta, we got to get ready for this. But this school was really poised to have its moment in the sun, and they were kind of waiting for recognizing that the basketball program could do that. I don't think they expected it in this grandeur. But, you know, yeah, the, a lot of stuff is going on down there. And, of course, the basketball team is just trying to figure out, okay, what do we do now? How do we keep going and stay relevant without being a one-hit wonder? So the expectation would obviously be that they are a one-hit wonder. This is not mm-hmm. a school that's really, um, despite what you've said about the new basketball facility and everything that they've done to ramp up the program, this is not a school that's really prepared or equipped for long-term major basketball success. I mean, the chance that they'll become a Gonzaga, I think, is 0.000%. Um, there are a lot of other examples of schools mm-hmm. that have – had one kind of NCA moment in the sun and have not, um, you could call you it know, a shining moment, a shining moment. Good, <laughs> good point, seven. Um, and have not really, you know, got gotten back there. And so I would be concerned if it seemed like they, their expectations were too high. Like, 
are they like realistic about what the chances are that they're ever going to do anything good on the basketball court again? Yeah, I think they are. And I think, you know, I agree with you to an extent. I think there are certainly programs that sort of had their moment in the sun and, and disappeared. But, um, you know, they're, they're a little different in that there is an investment in the program. I, I mean, that facility, you know, for, for an America East program to go out and invest $80 million in a brand new arena that not only includes an arena that you can get concerts and all those and graduations, which is necessary, but also give the basketball team a, a, a small practice facility attached to it is not inconsequential. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. A lot of schools at that level don't have that. So, you know, I think realistic expectations are, hey, we want to be winning the America East and being the team that makes it into the tournament. Now, are they always going to win a game? Probably not. Could they improve their seed over the course of time, become good enough that they aren't a 16 anymore, that they're a 14 to 13, and maybe put themselves in position to be more of an upset maker? Yeah, potentially. I mean, you have to look more towards – the Northern Iowa's who had their, you know, Ali Frock Monish moment when they beat Kansas and they've been back and they've been in the top 25, somebody like that, or a Valparaiso who had their hook and ladder and they still, you know, every once in a while people recognize the name and recognize the caliber of the program. Um, yeah, I, um, I actually think uh, UNBC um, could, you know, maybe not become like a Gonzaga, but uh, Florida Gulf Coast was good for a few yeah. years. Um, and they're in that air, they're in a hotbed of basketball, you know, that, that mm -hmm. DMV corridor where there are, you know, just dozens of division one basketball players coming out of there every year. So it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, some of the guys that, you know, maybe got overlooked by Georgetown or Maryland, you know, maybe ended up at UBMC now. And instead of, instead of leaving that area and going to another, you know, I guess mid-major school, maybe because of their name recognition, they start to get more of those types of guys to stay in there and actually play there. I think that's a great point, Damon, because, you know, UNBC had to get lucky last year with their best player, Jairus Lyles, who had originally gone to VCU. Mm -hmm. He was low on the depth chart and transferred to Robert Morris. And then he didn't like it there and wanted to move back mm -hmm. closer to home. And he really didn't have any options. And this kid went to DeMatha and was a legit D1 recruit. Um, so those are the kinds of players that, that you're right. Like there are good basketball players in Washington, Baltimore, Virginia. That it would seem to me that 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 UMBC is going to need to be able to sign. And if I were Maryland, Georgetown, you know, GW, other schools that maybe are going after local kids, they're the ones that maybe need to be wary and and you know and careful about how they recruit. Yeah, I think too. What happens is like a lot of the guys I spoke to who were on the team last year. They they choose, chose UMBC because, as you said, they didn't really have anybody else. It was the only D1 offer. They went in blind. They'd never been on campus until they took a visit, and nobody else said they were interested. So, okay, yeah, we're going to go here. I think what happens is when you get your name out there, as they did this year, you're going to see kids that be like, oh, I actually know who this program is. I know what this program is all about. I've heard about Ryan Odom. I, I, I've paid a little bit of attention. So it's going to be more attractive to kids who might otherwise have just been flying blind. And I might and, have a chance to play, right, Dana? Like yeah. I, if I go to Maryland and I'm number 11 on, on the depth chart. Yeah, and, and I, I don't know if you're going to, you know, it's going to be harder to beat a Maryland with ACC, but you can go, you know, if you're good enough, you might go head-to-head -head with a George Washington in town, right? I mean, you might be able to say, hey, you know, we, we have done more recently than they have. Why wouldn't you take a flyer on us? And, you know, right, if you have a kid that's going to be, I'm going to be a recruited walk-on at Maryland, and UMBC says, well, we'll give you a darn scholarship. <laughs> 
then it's a different ballgame. So I think, yeah, I think that exposure opens you up to recruits who just otherwise might not have even known what your name, what your initial stood for. And that's a, that's a big deal. That's exactly why George Mason has just made the final four every year since, uh, <laughs> since, since 2006. I mean, I hate to c- keep being the uh, skunk in the garden party, but they're not going to be successful. Come on, people. Let's be honest. Let's be honest with ourselves. Uh, well, it's it's going to be it, imp- it it's, on the university it, investment again. Like, I mean, I think it depends on what the university wants to do with it. I mean, I'm not, again, I, and I'm not saying they're going to make it to the final four. I think that's outlandish. But can they be a, a decent mid-major team that that wins their league and you know look at vermont people for years vermont has been sort of a very good team in the america east and people talk about oh vermont is you know as a cinderella team in march that's that's a reputation that vermont has built for itself within the same league umbc could build that reputation I sure you, yeah, yeah. yeah they're not going to be gonzaga can they be a team that says in march people know what it means now yeah they can be that yeah team. we're 27 and 9 we deserve a 12 seed I was actually going to make that point where, you know, I, I think that uh, success, you know, has to be qualified. And, and, and again, you know, and and I also don't think that they're going to be competing with the Georgetowns and the Maryland's. But, no. you know, so I played in mid in, in the MAC in the, the Metro Atlantic Athletic with Canisius mm-hmm. and Siena and, and all those schools. And a lot of those schools in that area recruited from the Maryland area, from the D.C. area and got the kids that weren't that were overlooked by the Georgetowns, by the Maryland's, by even like the um, American universities or, or whatever. And so, you know, I, again, I just see perhaps a lot of those kids, instead of going to Pennsylvania or going to New York or going to New Jersey to go to school, they just decide to stay home. Um, and, you know, I, with an area like that, I don't think that you can discount the possibility of them having a sustained success just because of the name recognition and sustained success isn't them being a four seed isn't them competing isn't them being in the top 25 but it could be them finishing in the top half of their league every year and having a decent shot of getting through the tournament for the next decade two assistants from the team got jobs at small d1 schools in the Mm offseason which is pretty crazy but the head coach ryan odom decided to stay he negotiated a new contract and reading your story dana I felt kind of moved that this was like a seemed like a good guy, and the mm-hmm. backstory was one of those good coaching lineage um, stories that his father had a relationship with a guy that helped him get a job at a small D two school where he stayed for a couple of years. He seems like a decent person in this age of cynicism about the motivations and the behaviors of NCAA Division one coaches. Yeah, I think so. I mean, first of all, you know, Ryan Odom is Dave Odom's son, so he grew up with the reality of what college basketball coaches coaching is all about. He knows that you are disposable um, and that you are only as good as your last season, so he's a realist. Um, he also went through his own situation where he was hired as the interim coach at Charlotte and really thought he could do something, and instead they let him go, and he was really demoralized by it and really needed to have his confidence rebuilt, which was the opportunity, as you said, he got at Lenore Ryan with um, Neil McGahey, who was the athletic director, who was friends with his, you know, Ryan's father all these years. So he's kind of been humbled, and I think that stays with him. Now, do I think he's going to be the UMBC coach for five more years or ten more years or for life? Probably not. Um, but, you know, I think he saw the situation and, and wisely decided – you know, you have to time it right. Capitalizing on it while you're hot is one thing, but you want to capitalize it to go to a program where 
you can be successful. You don't want to just take a job because you got a job offer. You got to be smart. And I think he's recognizing that I'm going to be savvy in this process. I'm going, and I'm happy where I am. And and he really truly is happy. His his son, I mean, it's been well documented, has a very very strong case of OCD, and it's been debilitating and crushing for the entire family. And they've finally got that in order. And he's very happy where he is in Annapolis. And that stuff matters. Um, it doesn't matter to every coach. God knows, but it matters to him. So, you know, I think he made a decision right now that's good for him and his family. That's not to say we're going to tattoo his name on the on the building and he's going to stay there for life. But I think, yeah, I think he is grounded and humble. And you made the Gonzaga comparison earlier. I mean, Mark Few has long said, don't mess with happy. And a lot of coaches, I think, are suddenly getting that message. We've seen that in other programs. And I think that that's trickling down everywhere these days. So Odom was able to capitalize on the run by getting a new contract. Mm-hmm. The players were able to capitalize by getting uh, they they got to FaceTime with Ninja <laughs> from Fortnite. So yeah. you can't you can't put a cash value on no, that. Getting I mean, a tweet from Aaron Rodgers? Come on. Apparently yeah. not. Like I don't know anything about Fortnite other than my fourteen year old is obsessed with it. When I came home, I'm like, Kieran, who's Ninja? He's like, What? <laughs> I was like, Okay, apparently that is a big deal. Got it. Sorry. So, um, yeah. So I'm just curious, Dana, like you've reported on college sports for a really long time. um, And with these Cinderella teams, they're generally touted as being an example of what's right about college sports and that um, these are players who, like, if there was an open market, probably wouldn't be making Mm -hmm. money. Um, But when you look at, you know, what the coach was able to do and capitalizing off of his success, what the school has been able to do, capitalizing off its success by getting more applications. Does it feel like these players, whether it's, um, you know, somebody like Joe Sherburn, who's still on the team, Mm -hmm. does it feel like they should have been able to, you know, cash out a little bit on, on what they accomplished? I think there's a way that you can do it. So it's fair and equitable to every player and every athlete and every sport, male or female. And that is safeguarded as well. Someone presented this to me, so it's not my original idea. But I don't see why, um, especially in this circumstance, like, you you know, UMBC goes in and upsets Virginia. And what if some, I don't know, car dealership wants these kids to then do advertising for a year and wants to offer them, I don't know, $50,000 each, let's pretend. And they say they can't take it because they want to come back to college. Why can't they take that deal? The $50,000 is then put inside a fund run by the school that work its interest and that once their eligibility is over, whether they choose to leave early, they transfer, whatever the situation is, when they're done with their college eligibility, they get the money back with whatever interest, and they've capitalized on their moment of fame. Nobody, you know, The money is safeguarded, so it's not like it's under the table. It's put somewhere where it's on the up and up. And to me, that makes the most sense because then if you're UMBC and you have your moment in the sun and somebody wants to use you, you're great. If you're a UConn women's basketball player, you got it. If you're Katie Ledecky at Stanford, you get your money. If you're the offensive line at Wisconsin who's getting all this notoriety, you can go do something. I don't see why they can't make that work. I have a suggestion. You could just give them the money. <laughs> that might well, yeah, also I mean, work, they're, too. They're, the fear is, I guess, yes. Or just give them the money and let them invest it or spoil it or do whatever they want with it. Absolutely. It's their money. I think the fear is, like, to make sure there's not, you know, whatever, back deals and yada, yada for, like, the, the massive, you know, the D1 quarterbacks of the year of, and, and the ones that are up in the upper echelon. But, yeah, whatever you want to do. But if you do it above board, 
is fine. Dana, you also spent some time with the president of UMBC, Freeman Hrabowski, who is Mm -hmm. a great talker, and he is an interesting character. Um, He told you people talk about athletics as a way to shine a light. This shows the true meaning of the power of athletics to transform thinking, all of these wonderful things that have been happening at our school, but few people knew about them. I hate to be a a cynic. Well, I really don't hate to be a cynic. But if you need sports to let people know about what you're good at, maybe you're not doing a great job letting people know. I just Part of me, as much as I love this story of these under-recruited and under-appreciated young athletes taking down the number one team in the nation. I guess I just didn't wish we didn't need the power of athletics to transform thinking. I mean, UMBC did spend, what did you say, 80 million or 95 million mm-hmm. on a basketball facility? That's still a lot of money that could have been spent on other stuff. Well, I, yeah, I agree with you to an extent. I mean, I understand what you're saying that in, in the ideal world, these programs that exist and you know, get the notoriety. And I think in the corners that it matters, they do, right? I mean, for the kids who want those sorts of programs who are going on to get their PhDs, they are, people know about, those people know about UMBC and they are using it for what it's meant for. I think their point is that, you know, nationally, it's, it's difficult to find your window in the market. I mean, it's your UMBC, you're not University of Maryland, you're not a school that is easily recognizable. Um, and, you know, I, listen, I'm in the process, I have a high school senior, she's going through the college application process, and she's 17. And she knows what she knows. And a lot of what she knows, I'm going to be honest, is because of, of football teams. And that's just that, the, that's the familiarity. That's how you get your, people know things. Is that right, wrong, or indifferent? I don't know. But she'll go into those programs and now look at their majors and see if it's you know applicable to what she wants to do and all that. She'll go the extra step. But she's looking at things based on names that she's heard. I mean, we're all victims of what have you heard of? It's what's popular. And I think – you know, for people who need UMBC for their particular major, they've maybe long known this little pocket of humanity. But for the rest of the world who just saw four letters and didn't know what they stood for and thought it was a commuter school, now then maybe they go and do the research and say, oh, oh, I get it. This is actually a pretty good school. And, and that's what I think is, is what he means. Is that is that a shame? I guess so. But it's the world we live in. I mean, I just think that that's, you know. That's where we are. I mean, I, you've seen it in every school that has had these sort of circumstances, all the way back to Doug Flutie and Boston College. It's just, this is what happens. Dana O'Neill writes for The Athletic. You should go read her story about UMBC, but you're going to need a subscription to do it, so subscribe. It's cheap. Dana, thanks. Anytime. Appreciate you guys having me. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for Afterballs, and we just talked about UMBC, and you mentioned Jairus Lyles, who was the best player, the star player. We did not mention the most memorable player on that team, which is KJ Maura, who was the five foot eight point guard. He was probably actually five foot four, but listed at five foot eight. Um, wanted to check out what he's up to. He has signed a, he a professional right? contract. Yeah. yeah, he's uh, 
he graduated. He signed with Santeros de Aguada in Puerto Rico. And looking at the Santeros de Aguada. And I think um, that's where his family was from, from Puerto Rico. Puerto Rican, yep. Uh, looking up their Wikipedia page, the team folded um, for in 1998 due to financial problems and then re- restarted in 2016. So just advice for KJ, just make sure the check's clear. Good advice for any <laughs> basketball player who's uh-huh. playing overseas. Yeah, so KJ Mara, we remember you. Good luck uh, playing pro basketball in uh, Puerto Rico. Stefan, what is your KJ Mara? Well, I visited Cooperstown a couple of weeks ago for the first time. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit. Love the museum part of the Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. My daughter and I started with the 15-minute introductory film, Generations of the Game. It was directed by a friend of mine and the podcast, Jonathan Hawk, and written by Joe Poznanski. So it's really good. We wandered through the early baseball and Babe Ruth and black baseball exhibits. And then the museum's senior curator, Tom Schieber, was kind enough to give us a tour of the permanent collection, the library, photo room, tons of stuff stored on rolling shelves and in boxes in the climate-controlled basement where you've got to wear white gloves. Uh, We saw the cap that Roberto Clemente wore in his last game. We saw a license plate from a car that Christy Mathewson received as a gift from the New York Giants in 1912. I pulled out a bat randomly from a cabinet that stores all these bats that was used by some random dude I've never heard of. And we saw some really good and some really bad baseball art. It is an amazing place. We were on our own, however, in the plaque gallery. And I was on my own because Chloe, my daughter, didn't give a shit about Candy Cummings and Reggie Jackson. So she sat down and looked at her phone while I examined the 323 plaques. I came away with a few observations, which I buttressed then by looking at about 300 of the 323 plaques on the hall's website. This was not time well spent. Plaque talk. One, I am definitely old school when it comes to plaque design. Big fan of the font and the ragged right layout on the older plaques, both of which are rounder and more soothing than the modern ones, which have a more aggressive vertical font and a right justification. Don't like that as much. Two, I tried to identify the most unworthy player in the Hall of Fame, not based on actual baseball ability in his era, because who really knows, but on the way his accomplishments are rendered on his plaque. And I settled on Dave Bancroft, a shortstop nicknamed Beauty, who played for four teams from 1915 to 1930. His plaque reads, set major league record for chances handled by a shortstop in a season, 984 in 1922. I will note that Bancroft, he does still hold the record for people hitting the ball at him. My runner up (laughs) in this category is Billy Herman, who played in the 30s and 40s. His plaque starts master of the hit and run play. He's the master of it. Three, I decided it must suck to be a Hall of Famer and have the name of another Hall of Famer on your plaque, defining you as a lesser Hall of Famer. Rabbit Moranville's plaque, for instance, says, at-bat total 10,078, surpassed only by one National Leaguer, Hannes Wagner. And if I'm, if I'm Rabbit Moranville, I'm saying, wouldn't second most at-bats in National League history have been you know, have been fine. But how does that even work? Because what if somebody passes him? Do they have to create a new plaque? No, they just, it's all at the time you were inducted. Okay. So records are meant to be broken in baseball. Hannes Wagner also plaque bombs Archie Vaughn. Among Hall of Fame shortstops, his 318 lifetime batting average is second only to Hannes Wagner's 329. Those guys must be like, Hannes Wagner, Hannes Wagner, Hannes Wagner. Roger Bresnahan's first line is even more humiliating. Battery mate of Christy Mathewson with the New York Giants. 
totally defined by someone else. All right, four. I've got five, so bear with me. Four, there's been serious plaque inflation in recent years. The old plaques were direct and concise. Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth get just five lines of text. Cobb's plaque starts, created or equaled more major league records than any other player. Boom. Ruth, greatest drawing card in history of game. Boom. Cy Young, only pitcher in first hundred years of baseball to win 500 games. Boom. Other than the legends, the early plaques could be a little stat-heavy. The style evolved over the decades, and the Hall, I'd say, got it right in the 1980s when inductees enjoyed an excellent balance between stats, prose, and concision. Cubs outfielder Billy Williams, inducted in 1987, might be the exemplar of this period. A tight six-and-a-half lines that start, soft-spoken clutch performer was one of the most respected hitters of his day. That is a lovely sentence. I would be honored to be recognized that way on my plaque. By the turn of this century, though, the plaques have become downright logorrheic, as if the hall needs to puff up the recent admissions. Chipper Jones, just inducted this summer, gets 11 lines of smushed-together text. Jeff Bagwell got 12. They are visually and informationally overwhelming. Here's the first line for Walter Johnson, considered to be fastest ball pitcher in history of game. Here's the first line for Randy Johnson. At 6'10", a towering and intimidating left-hander whose crackling fastball and devastating slider paralyzed hitters for more than two decades. Or check out the purple enthusiasm for Pedro Martinez, featuring an electric arsenal of pitches that vanquished batters during an era of high-octane offense. Oh my God. The fiery righty from the Dominican Republic owned the inside part of the plate with an exploding fastball and confounding changeup. I will say an era of high-octane offense to describe the steroids era is pretty great. All right, five, and we're almost done. In fairness, summing up a player's career in a few lines of text is hard, especially when you need to make sure people say, wow, Chipper Jones was really great instead of Chipper Jones in the Hall of Fame. Plaque writers over the decades have turned some delightful phrases. There's some repetition, as you might expect, because there are only so many ways to say guys were great at the same shit. Richie Ashburn had superb knowledge of strike zone while Wade Boggs had commanding knowledge of strike zone. And there's a lot of determination and dedication and consistency on the plaques. But I want to end with some of my favorite Hall of Fame plaque descriptions and tidbits. Johnny Mize, keen-eyed slugger. I like that. Cool Papa Bell. Contemporaries rated him fastest man on base paths. Jimmy Fox, his plaque begins noted for his batting, which seems like it might be underselling Jimmy Fox a little bit. Gary Carter, exuberant on-field general with a signature smile. That's nice. Buck Ewing, unsurpassed in throwing two bases. He's a catcher. Burt Blylevin, fun-loving Dutchman. George, George Davis, a shortstop of shining prominence. That's pretty nice. Vic Willis, tall, graceful workhorse with sweeping curve. And finally... My favorite descriptive goes to my childhood broadcasting hero, Phil Rizzuto, the Yankee shortstop in the 40s and 50s, enthusiastic base runner. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to be remembered as an enthusiastic base runner? That is the damning with uh, faint praise Hall of Fame edition. Josh, what's your KJ Mara? Last week, a listener who goes by the username Rite27 sent me a short documentary that they had made on Marge Schott, the first woman to buy a Major League Baseball team. She acquired a controlling interest in the Cincinnati Reds in 1984, 11 million bucks. Uh, Schott was known for having a St. Bernard named Schatzi, 
who she'd take with her everywhere. The dog is a big, big negative, an anonymous Reds player told Sports Illustrated in 1992. Why anonymous? Uh, Criticize the dog and you might be gone, Tim Kirk generate. The player continued, it's embarrassing for the players. They talk all the time in the clubhouse about how angry they are about it. The fans laugh because they're embarrassed. It's like, how stupid can this get? The dog craps on the field every night, and the same guy has to scoop it up. People laugh at the guy. She does some inhumane things to people. Among the other things Schott did was refer to her players using racial slurs, complain that she didn't like Asian Americans, quote, outdoing our kids in school, say that, again, I quote, only fruits wear earrings, and explain on multiple occasions that Adolf Hitler was good in the beginning but went too far. The multiple occasions thing is what gets me. The headline of a Washington Post story, Shot Praises Hitler Again. <laughs> Here are those, those second uh, Hitler comments, uh, which she gave to ESPN's Sal Palantonio in May 1996. This was in an on-camera interview. I remember this. I saw a quote where you said Hitler was good for Germany. You don't believe that? No, I think at the beginning, we're talking about history, Mm -hmm. not about what I say, but I know at the beginning, everything you read, when he came in, he was good. They built tremendous highways. Everybody in history knows that he did, was good at the beginning, but he just went too far. Tremendous highways. She'd be like Secretary of Transportation in the Trump administration if she were still alive. Marchot, I think we can all agree. She was good in the beginning. She just went too far, except for the part about being good in the beginning. Um, She was banned from running her team through 1998. That was in 1996. She was banned from 96 to 98. She sold her interest in the team in 99. She died in 2004. And that was the end of Marchot, unless you believe in reincarnation. But wait, there's more. Uh, Rite27, who made that short documentary, informed me of a crazy fact, which I did not know, and that is that the ballpark at the University of Cincinnati is named Marge Schott Stadium after this person. Schott had a lot of money, and she gave a lot of it to philanthropic causes. In fact, her estate continues to give away millions to this day, almost uh, 15 years after her death. She gave away money to St. Ursula in Cincinnati, the Boys and Girls Club, St. Rita School for the Deaf, And yes, the University of Cincinnati. If you are a rich person who is also an awful person, then your local paper, in this instance, the Cincinnati Inquirer, will write about how you have a, quote, complicated legacy. What with you being a horror show of an individual, but also having a lot of money that you can use to uh, give to charitable causes that benefit humankind. I'm not sure Marge Shot Stadium at the University of Cincinnati fits into the category of great philanthropic endeavors. But I'll let you judge for yourself. I'm not somebody who believes in telling you what to think. It does feature batting cages. So keep that in mind. Um, indoor batting cages and an indoor pitching mount, pitcher's mount. There's a fully equipped press box with private viewing areas. There's dressing rooms for coaches. How could a bad person fund dressing rooms? There is a state-of-the-art training room, full laundry and equipment facilities, and of course, the Mott's Group Triple Play HP playing surface. I'm sure the Mott's Group uh, would love to be associated with Nazism. Um, I was not able to find too much that's been written, strangely. I find this whole thing, thing strange. 
But um, nobody really has objected to this naming rights situation. I did find in a student-run publication. Well, before I get to that, I found a change.org petition, Stefan, 27 signatures. Not that not very <laughs> impressive. Um, I was it's a major league roster plus two. Yeah. Um, plus, plus, uh, plus a dog. Um, a student-run publication at the University of Cincinnati called The News Record published a piece earlier this year that ended, Cincinnati's continued celebration of such a widely disrespected woman proves that Cincinnati and the UC community both have a long way to go to alleviate racism. The remnants of the cultural gateway to the South also pass a lingering racist view to many of our citizens who are slowly departing the urban area. I hope that we can look to the past and recognize that this woman does not deserve to have her name on any campus facility, regardless of how big her donation was. Seems sensible to me. Wait, wait, wait. That piece also includes this line. She was just drunk in public. She didn't mean any of that, some say. <laughs> Great point, some. Um, anyway, you know, if the university wants to rename the stadium, there are a bunch of different options they could keep up with the times and rename it Richard Spencer Stadium. Like, that seems like a, good, a great option. The world is changing, University of Cincinnati. If you don't act fast, you're going to get left behind. I want to know, like, what the terms of her bequest were. Maybe there were some bequest terms. There probably were. There's got to be some reason that the University of Cincinnati feels that it can't take her name. When did she die? 2004? 14 years yeah, after her death off of the stadium? I think you've hit on it because, as I mentioned, her estate just keeps just uh, throwing throwing millions around. Like, it's not uh, an issue where it's, it's not like a dead issue. Like, they're just continuing to get money from this dead woman who likes Nazis. Uh, Damon, what is your KJ Maura? Zion Williamson currently exists in a strange space of the zeitgeist where you've likely either already seen roughly 27,000 clips of him dunking on high school teams stocked with Justin Bieber doppelgangers, or you're reading this and thinking, who is Zion Williamson? Either you're almost tired of talking about him, or you have no clue who or what the fuck he is. Basically, he's basketball kombucha. For those in the latter clamp, here's a quick summary. Zion Williamson is the incoming freshman at Duke University. His explosive athleticism, captured in numerous viral highlight tapes, has drawn comparisons to LeBron James. This LeBron comparison, for the record, is inaccurate. Williamson isn't as skilled in advance as the basketball players an 18-year-old LeBron already was. Also, Zion is somewhat actually even more explosive. This is going to veer into basketball wonk territory, but as insane as LeBron's hops are, he's primarily a one-foot leaper. He can bounce off of two fine enough, but he doesn't get as much elevation there as he does when leaping off of his left leg. Williamson, however has what we used to refer to in Pittsburgh as caveman hops, off of one and two. Of course, there have been and currently are other freak athletes who can do the things Williamson is doing. What makes him so unique is that he weighs a reported 285 pounds. He is the size of an NFL defensive end, and he's guys like Vince Carter. I've never seen anyone that size get up that high, and neither have you. Predictably, Williamson's exploits have gained him a considerable fan base already, as even NBA stars have gone gaga watching him play. And just as predictably, in the comment sections and videos and blogs featuring him, and in the Twitter threads about him, and in some of the barbershop convos discussing him, you'll find comments like these, where people will ask, rhetorically, does footage of Zion Williamson shooting the ball even exist? Wake me up when he does something like take a charge or, or does a dribble move. Does Zion Williamson have any post moves? 
Of course, there is footage of Zion Williamson shooting a basketball. His highs have been on the internet since he was 15. But questions like these aren't sincere asks. They know that they could easily find a clip of him shooting a three, or making an outlet pass, or hitting a defender with a hezzy in an inside-out cross, or setting a screen to roll into the basket. Instead, they're just trying to distinguish themselves as a sober-minded and level-headed pragmatist. The brave souls, unafraid to say that things that actually matter, while everyone else is enthralled with Williamson's dunks. Yeah, that dunk from the three-point line was okay, I guess, but wake me up when he takes a charge. For context, this is like watching Beyonce's Lemonade and then tweeting, but can she play the ukulele, though? I can't call an artist till she does that. Anyway, fuck those people. If you are one of those people, I hate you, and I wish you a life of nothing but jeans that don't fit quite right, and going to the Popeye's takeout at 1046 to get there before they close at 10, and learning that they stopped making chicken 10 minutes ago, but can maybe give you some coleslaw and some Sprite. That's it. <laughs> That's great. Um, I was actually impressed by Zion Williamson's uh, jump shot when I saw the highlights. He can shoot better than Ben Simmons. He can shoot better than Ben Simmons, um, you know, which is, which is a very, like, the, that bar is so low that you will bang your shit on it, basically. <laughs> um, but, yeah, he can definitely shoot better than Ben Simmons. He could shoot, shit, he could shoot better than, um, right now, than, um, fuck, what's his name? Who was Markel the draft Fultz? Pick? Yeah, then he could shoot better. He could shoot better than every Philadelphia Sixers draft pick of the last three years. <laughs> um, and... You know, when you're a guy that size and that athletic, you know, I, there's been this like criticism that, you know, because he's this weird, he's, he's not super tall and, you know, he doesn't have a great shot. And when he plays against guys who are, you know, bigger and whatever, he'll be less effective. And yes, he's not going to average 39 points a game, but his type of athleticism translates everywhere. Like, right now, today, he would be one of the five best athletes in the NBA. It's insane. Did you see yeah. any of the highlights uh, over yeah, the weekend, Stephen? Yeah, I've, I've been on the Zion Williamson, you know, I've been on Zion Allen since since 2016. <laughs> but, like, these Duke games, I can understand people who are like, I don't know how this is going to play at a higher level. But it is ridiculous how how much better he is. It looked like he was playing middle it's school crazy. teams. Does McGill like take 14 year olds? <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, and he's gonna he's gonna make a lot of people look bad, like in college and in the NBA. And and yes, there are gonna be times when there are gonna be guys who are, you know, who are who who give him some issues matching up against them. Like there's a there's a player, not say or little, from North Carolina who plays in North Carolina now, incoming freshman who who locked him up pretty much in the in the in the McDonald's All American game. But you know, if Zion is with the right team and has a team that like spreads the court and has all these shooters, he's a good enough ball handler and he's also a really good passer. Where, yes, he is an undersized. He's right now he's an undersized four, but so is Draymond Green. And Draymond Green isn't like the greatest shooter ever either. Right. You know, and so there is a there is a place for a guy for guys who are freak of nature athletes who also have basketball skills. On the NBA court, I mean, PJ Tucker is like six three, and he was a starting four for a team that should have gone to the finals. All right, we will all be watching Zion Williamson this year and enriching the NCAA. And that is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort, and our intern is Meredith Ellison. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com/hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. Damon Young, thank you so much for doing the show this week. 
Uh, thanks for having me. It was great. Uh, Stefan Fatsis, thank you for doing the show this week. Thanks for having me. It was great. Uh, <laughs> I am Josh Levine, and I am going to thank myself. It was great. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.